Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, tonight's Bible reading comes from the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 24. I did prepare the NIV, but it's from the ESV. Um, so if you're looking on the Pew Bibles on page 806, it will be slightly different. Okay, so it's Matthew, chapter 24, verses 32 to 44. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender... And you put it and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. But the Father only. For as were the, da- the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the one in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." This is the word of the Lord. Can you hear me now? I have a very soft voice. (laughs) Good evening, everybody. Hey, that was fantastic. And I haven't been here for so long. You must have remembered from last time. (laughs) I don't let you get away with it unless you give a bit of energy into your reply. Well, it's lovely to be here. As you might know, some of us are going off to Israel and Jordan next Saturday. Mike Turner is coming to keep us all in line which, of course, he'll completely fail to do. Um, We have some relatives of the older raiders coming, that's correct, isn't it? And uh, altogether from our church here, there's nine people coming, and there's a, uh, on our team altogether is 41 people. And the main reason we're going, or apart from seeing Israel and Jordan, is to spend a day with the Nichols, members of our church here who are missionaries in um, Amman in Jordan and we've been making plans for that time together. We want to encourage them and hear all about what, and see what they're doing so that the, the, um, the parishes that they are supported by will be able to help them even more. Now, this is a, what they call a one-off sermon. We're between series. And I thought to myself, 
What if this was the last sermon you were ever going to hear? What do you think it should be about? Had a little think. I'm not going to ask you to tell me because if you get it wrong, you'll be all upset. But, <laughs> but it's an interesting question, isn't it? If this was the last one you were ever going to hear, what would you like it to be about? Well, as I thought about it, it didn't take me long to work it out. What about this? John 3.16, the best known verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This verse goes to the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. Someone who has received the most wonderful gift of eternal life with God in heaven. Now, of course, if you've been a follower of Jesus for some time, you might be thinking, why do I need to hear a sermon about that again? Well, here's a good reason. In the words of the old hymn, Tell Me the Old, Old Story. You ever sung that one here at night? Well, you should have. Have a, have a word with the management over there. Tell me the old, old story. One verse says this. I won't sing it. Tell me, tell it to me often. For I forget so soon. The early dew of morning has passed away at noon. In other words, the joy of our first love can so easily fade away as we think less about him and what he's done and more about ourselves, our problems and whatever it happens to be that we like to think about. And we take it for granted. On the other hand, there may be some people here tonight who have never taken that step that brings eternal life. You would like to, but something keeps holding you back. I was like that for years in my early days. Well, if that's you, you need especially to listen to this today as if you will never hear it again. Because who knows what today, tomorrow will bring. Two days ago, five people were in a car and they were wiped out in a second. We never know. Anyway, before we begin to address this question, there's something we all need to know again. The secret of eternal life is found in only one place. Hebrews 1 verse 1 says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us 
by his son. God's words were written down by the prophets and the apostles and they've come down to us in the Holy Scriptures. And that is the only source of true knowledge of God. And that is what you're going to hear tonight. Now, any true presentation of the old, old story has two essential elements. Think of it as two sides of a coin. One side of the coin is about God, what he has done and what he is like. And the other side of the coin is about us, what we are like and what we have done. And so we're going to look at God's side of the coin first. What has he done and what is he like? Well, hey, he created the universe. He controls the universe. He is the source of life and he is the source of everything good there is. As for what he is like as a person, that can be summed up in one word. The word is righteousness. And as part of that is his holiness, his unapproachable glory. But as for his righteousness, this is a very common word in the Bible. I wonder if you've tried to work out what it means. I've been reading the last few weeks pages and pages of commentaries and articles, which is always an indication that people are not quite sure what it means. <laughs> Many words <laughs> cover things up. But what is righteousness? Well, it points to his character of absolute goodness and purity. That is, he always does what is right, what is just, and what is pure. And a good picture of what God is like in his inner being is given to us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and following, where Paul paints a picture of what someone is like as they grow more and more like him. You know this well. The fruit of the Spirit of God is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
Paul says, against such things there is no law. And I tell you, that's as good a description of righteousness as I can find in the Bible. Ultimately, righteousness is the expression of God's very being. And other things are judged by it. Be ye holy, for I am holy. And righteousness, what makes a thing right or wrong is what goes against his character and his will. Which brings us back to the other side of the coin. Same passage, just a bit before. This is about us. What are we like as a race? This is what Paul says. Now the works of the flesh are evident. (coughs) You only have to watch the news, of course, to see evidence of these things. There's sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, says Paul. I warn you, he said, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he's not saying that every person is characterised by every one of those things. But what he is saying is that every person is tainted by many of them. And the end result is that we are unrighteous. We start out in life with a predisposition to live our own life, our own way, without God. If you are or have been a parent, or even if you've been a child, I suppose that probably affects everybody, but when you bring up a a child, you realise you don't actually have to teach them to be naughty. They seem to know how to do that. You have to teach them to be good. There is a predisposition in human nature that expresses itself more and more in willful rejection of how God wants us to live. Paul says in Romans 2.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what this means is that because we have all acted unrighteously, God's righteousness or justice requires that we be held accountable at the final judgment to receive what we deserve. God will hold us accountable and it will be by justice. 
It's just like in the courts in our land. Supposing the judge, there's the trial, the person is convicted, but the judge says, oh, well, don't do it again and off you go. Other people who were injured by what he, that person did would say that is unjust. And if that's true in a broken society like ours, how much more true is it with a righteous God? And this raises the question, how can a, how can a righteous God do anything but condemn and judge unrighteous people. Romans 3 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. So how can we possibly be saved from the wrath to come? That is the $64,000 question. How can unrighteous sinners ever become acceptable to a righteous and holy God? Well, to find the answer to that, we have to go back to God's side of the coin. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Since it is God whom we have offended and sinned against, it is only God who can set out the terms and conditions of reconciliation. We have nothing on our side of the table to bargain with. We're guilty. We're under judgment from a just and righteous God. So how can we escape? Well, listen to this. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What? What's this word propitiation? It's not a word that we use very much these days. Now, I asked this question this morning at church. I don't know if you know what this word means. It pops up quite a lot in the Bible. If you th I'm not going to ask you to give me the answer, but if you think you know what it means, raise your hand. Yes, two theologically trained people know what it means. One. But most people don't know what it means. So when I read that verse out, it's a bit like blah, blah, blah. It's, it's a meaningless sound, right? Because we don't use that word very often 
today. Well, let me give you a basic outline of what it means because God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we should find out what it means. Here's an example. It describes how people feel after the wrong that has been done to them has been dealt with in such a way as they don't want to take action against the offender. Did you hear what I said? It's, it's, it's how the offended party feels after something has happened that says, I'm not going to take any action against this person. For example, if you hadn't paid your rent for a long time and you were about to be evicted, okay? You haven't paid what you should have paid to the landlord for a long time and he's now about to chuck you out. But then someone steps in and pays your debt. Well, there you can, then you could say that, the, and he says, okay, you can stay. Well, then you could say that the landlord has been propitiated. He has been satisfied in relation to your outstanding debt. So propitiation is a description of how God feels when something has happened so that you don't have to be judged. And that's what it means when it says that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. By his death, Jesus, as one of us, accepted the blame and the punishment for our sins on the cross. And God's righteous justice was satisfied so that if we put our trust in Jesus, we are saved. And that's exactly how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Listen to this. He writes to them, And you, who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses or sins. How? By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us, that is our sins. He, and he goes on, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, there's Paul using exactly the same metaphor that I just used for you to describe it. Well, listen to how Jesus put it. Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, you know that a ransom is a payment made to rescue somebody 
from captivity. We are captive to the consequences of our sins and Jesus has redeemed us by taking the punishment on our behalf so God's justice is satisfied. As Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, he was wounded for us he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And by his stripes we are healed. Now go back to the our side of the coin. How can we avail ourselves of this enormous gesture of love that someone should take the rap for us, satisfy all God's complaints so that we can go free? Well, Ephesians 2.8, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In other words, if you know you are a sinner in need of forgiveness and you are truly sorry for what you have done and you humbly ask Jesus to forgive you, he absolutely will say yes to you. It's the one prayer that when you pray it from the heart, always gets a yes answer. John 6.37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And my own personal favourite verse in the Bible is from Jesus. He said, it's my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The punishment's been served and now all you need to do is put your trust in Jesus and the gift is yours. Now, people who have been saved for a long time need to be reminded of this blessed truth over and over again, lest they become complacent and lose their first love. And I've seen plenty like that. And people who fear that they've not yet crossed that line, they need to settle that matter once and for all if they want to be saved from the wrath to come. Listen to how Jesus himself put it. Revelation 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's the door of our hearts. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and sup with him 
and he with me. You have to ask Jesus to come to you and forgive you, and he will. That's his promise. It's an intensely personal and possibly difficult decision to make, but it has to be made. Now, there are a few people in this building tonight who were here back in 2017 uh, when I told my story. how I took this step, actually, as it happens, exactly 64 years last Wednesday ago. So last Wednesday was my new birth birthday. And it's a story of a very lonely and badly behaved 17-year-old without a friend in the world who, because of his terrible deeds, was physically thrown out by his parents. Don't ever come back. I went to hear Billy Graham, the great evangelist at the Sydney showground, along with 65,000 other people that day. And do you know what the passage was that he preached on? You just heard it. Matthew 24. As were the days of Noah so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood swept them all away, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. And as I heard those words, and Billy Graham explained them, I thought to myself, if Jesus came back that day, I was not ready to meet him. And I felt a real sense of dread. Have you ever felt a real sense of dread at standing before a righteous and just judge I did and then something inside of me said Bruce this is your moment you come to me so when Billy Graham asked people who wanted to have their sins forgiven and give their lives to Jesus to come down to the front I went forward with 5,000 other people that day. And I prayed the prayer asking Jesus to be my saviour. And I tell you that at that moment, 
I felt a great weight of guilt lifted from my shoulders. I just knew that I had been forgiven. And as I left the Sydney showground that day, I remember thinking to myself, Lord, now that I have found you, I'm never going to let you go. And by God's grace, 64 years later, I'm standing here to testify that he has never left me through all the ups and downs of a long and sometimes pretty eventful life. And I give thanks to him every day for what he did for me that day. But what about you? Do you do that? Or is it that you believe in your mind but you've never actually taken the step of faith that you know you have to take? I don't know how to explain it but I was like that for years before that day. Well, if you're like that, do it now. Settle it once and for all. Don't leave here without knowing that your sins have been forgiven. But you say, how? Well, think of the dying thief on the cross. All he could say was, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Or think of the tax collector in the temple whose sense of shame prevented him from even lifting his eyes to heaven. And he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man went home justified. So if you're here tonight and you haven't made that great commitment, stop making excuses. Just throw yourself on the mercy of God and I tell you, you will receive it right away. So I'm going to finish this sermon with a prayer. And if that prayer expresses your desire to find peace with God, you say Amen from the heart at the end. And if you've been a follower for Jesus of Jesus all your for many, many years. You and I, we always need to be reminded of these things so we should say amen as well. For the record, this is essentially the same prayer I prayed 64 years ago last Wednesday.
Now let's pray. Dear God, I am a sinner and I'm sorry for my sins. I believe Jesus died for me and I accept him as my saviour. Please forgive me and make me yours forever through Jesus Christ my Lord. Amen. Well, folks, there it is. This is what I would say if I knew that this was to be the last sermon you were ever going to hear. Because apart from this, I haven't got anything better to say. If you've been a Christian for a long time, hearing the gospel again should fill your heart with joy. And never forget that it's always God's grace. Be grateful and never take it for granted. If you prayed that prayer for the first time tonight, I want to encourage you to go and tell somebody who you know is a Christian what you've done. Well, they'll pray with you or for you and they'll encourage you. And if there's anybody here who hasn't yet done so, I appeal to you, don't let this day pass without making your peace with a holy, loving, righteous God. You'll be so glad you did. Thank you.